Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Um, 1 Samuel 19. Last time we were in 1 Samuel 18, a couple weeks ago, I believe it was. In that chapter, maybe it was last week, I don't remember. <laughs> in that chapter, the women of Israel got under the skin of Saul because Saul had come back from battle. David had killed Goliath. And the women were singing in Israel, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. So needless to say, Saul became jealous. He became angry as a result. And the chapter also says, chapter 18 says, everybody in Israel loved David. I mean, everybody loved him, and so he became very popular. And it says also that the Lord was with David in that chapter. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, you recall, in earlier chapters, but now the Spirit of the Lord was upon David. And Saul knew this. Look at chapter 18, verse 28, by the way. When Saul... Saul, sorry about that, Kyle. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, that is how you pronounce that name, Michal, his, uh, it says here, Saul's daughter loved him. See, even Michal loved him. Uh, then Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. And so spiteful of David was Saul that he eventually tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. In chapter 18, he tried to kill him not once, but he tried to spear him twice in his own presence. And so he's, but David managed to escape. But things would never be the same between David and Saul after this. Uh, David uh, is going to be hated by Saul. He's going to be hunted down by Saul. Chapter 18, verse 29 says, Thus was Saul's David's enemy continually. Enemy of, of Saul, David, the man who killed Goliath, now becomes the enemy of the king of Israel, Saul. And in chapter 19, that hatred for David is only going to increase and get worse and worse. Chapter 19 reveals Saul's determination to kill David. Saul is determined. If he doesn't do anything else in life from this point on, he's going to kill David, and that's what he wants to do. And in chapter 19, there are four attempts by Saul to try to kill David, and yet four times David escapes from Saul's grasp. This is nothing other than the providential protection of God. God in chapter 19 is providentially protecting David, and of course, that has a direct bearing on the Messiah, who was to come in the line of David. Because at this time, David had not had Solomon by Bathsheba, and that's in the line of Christ, according to Matthew chapter 1. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that David could have died before becoming a king due to a spear from Saul? Could that have happened? Uh, is it possible that David could have died by accident before his time? Is that possible? Let me ask you, let me expand that question. Will your death and my death be by accident? Well, that happened by accident. Maybe we haven't, we go outside and as he talked about his dream, we have, we, a car runs into us and all we say it's an accident. That's how we look at it. Will, it, will, will we die because of some random, random event that takes place that snuffs out our life? Or are we truly under the providential oversight and protection of God? Yeah. All the days of our life, which is it? Until God takes us home. Well, let's look at these four escapes of David that take place from the hand of Saul and see how the Lord is providentially watching over him every time. We're going to see the different means also by which the Lord employs to use to keep David alive, to, to make him safe in these, in these uh, attempts by Saul. First of all, David is spared the first time. David is spared death by Jonathan's counsel. That's chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. He spared death because of Jonathan's counsel, his friend Jonathan. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. It says, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. There you go. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. 
So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to, his fa to Saul, his father. And he said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck the Philistine, that's Goliath, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it. You rejoiced when that happened. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Verse 7 says, Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. Well, Saul does not waste any time getting to the point, does he? Verse 1, he calls a meeting with his staff. Uh, that his staff included his son Jonathan, by the way. And on the meeting, in that meeting, there was only one piece of, a, of, of business to cover uh, on that agenda. There was only one uh, matter to take care of. There was no need to take minutes in this meeting. I think everybody got what was said. Uh, Saul simply and directly tells everyone to concentrate on one single mission from now on, that is, put David to death. Kill David. Whatever happens, kill David. Now, prior to this, Saul, that, that thought had only been in the mind of Saul. He was the one that wanted to put David to death. Now he says, hey, let's, let's, I'm jealous of David. He's paranoid, by the way, that David might one day become king, and he's got good, good reason for that. He's been told that even. Chapter 15, verse 28, we look back there, it says this. Uh, God said to Saul, the Lord has tor torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. He said, I've got, I'm going to have a, another man replace you, Saul. You're not going to have a dynasty. And Saul knows his number's up eventually. He knows this. But he's, going to, he's not going to give in. He's going to fight against this. And so he figures, I'll just eliminate my competition. I'll just get rid of David. That, that's the answer. So he tries to kill him in chapter 18 twice with a spear, and it doesn't work. And so he figures, well, I'll send him into battle against the Philistines, chapter 18 again. He does that often, hoping that the Philistines will kill David to take care of Saul's dirty work for him, and he doesn't die in battle. And so he proposes that David marry his daughter, Michal, and he says, look, here's the dowry I want from you, David. I want you to kill 100 Philistines, thinking I got him now. If he goes after 100 Philistines, they're probably going to kill him, right? Chances are high they're going to kill him. So not only did David go out and kill the 100 Philistines, he killed twice as many to fulfill the dowry to Saul. So nothing is working at all. So he decides this, I'm going to include everyone else on my mission. I'm not going to do this alone. I'm not going to let just the enemy worry about it. Let's get all my staff, all my men, all my servants, all my soldiers, and let's go after David and kill him. However you can do it, whatever it takes, kill David. Verse 1, Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. This is the former hero of Israel. And he's now a wanted man. By the way, if he'd lived in the wild, wild west at that time, there would be a poster on every wall of every post office with the words under wanted man. David, David's drawing in, a, in words that said wanted, dead or alive, preferably dead, right? He wants him killed. There's only one problem, and that is it says here that Saul's, Saul's son Jonathan greatly delighted in David. That's a problem. The son of the guy that wants him dead greatly delights in David. 
Now, Saul had said the same thing. Look at chapter 18, verse 22 again. You remember when he wanted to try to get his daughter to marry David? In verse 22, it says, Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, saying, Behold, the king delights in you. Saul says, Let him know that the king delights in him, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Well, that was a lie. It was a trap. This marriage that he set up for David was a trap to try to ensnare David, to try to see to it that David was put to death. Saul did anything but delight in David. He, Jonathan delighted in David, but not Saul. Saul hated David. Jonathan was David's best friend. So naturally, when Jonathan hears of all this, he warns David. He says, look, my father's trying to kill you. Um, or he, he, wants, he wants David to know this information. But he appeals to his father with some wise counsel. This is interesting. We can learn something from Jonathan here. He appeals to his father with some wise counsel. By the way, 1 Timothy 5.1 says, concerning older men in the church, it says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Now, that's how older men are to be treated in a church. If, you, if an older man has some problem, some issue with people in the church, he's causing a problem of some kind, you don't go to him and say, you old fool, what's wrong with you? You don't do that. You treat him respectfully and kindly, and you make an appeal to him to try to, hey, let's get things right here. And that's how you do it. Now, that's what, that's what Jonathan did. He went with respect. He makes an appeal. By the way, in this case, Saul is actually his biological father, but he still makes the appeal with respect to him. He says, first of all, he speaks well of David uh, to his father. Then he says, look, father, if you kill David, that would be a sin. That would be wrong. Uh, David's an innocent man. He's done nothing worthy of death. He's not sinned against you in any way. He's not doing anything wrong. He's risked his life to defeat Goliath. Remember that big guy he went out and fought against that no one else would fight, fight against? He fought him and killed him. In fact, you even rejoiced when the victory was won. You were happy about this. You were ecstatic over this. He risked his life in this. And there's no re- legitimate reason to put David to death at all. No reason to do that. And if you do this, you're sinning against, uh, you're sinning against innocent blood. So even the way he goes about this is very wise. And the counsel that he gives is based on the word of God. He's giving him biblical counsel. Now, why does Jonathan say if his father kills David, he'll be sinning? Well, it's because he knows that the word of God says that. Exodus 23, 7 says, Do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for God says, I will not acquit the guilty. Jonathan is appealing to Saul, his father, on the basis of what the word of God says. And the word of God says that you shouldn't kill an innocent man. That's sin. You're going to incur guilt if you do that. Now, if you do any kind of biblical counseling... Uh, and I'm talking about people who do that professionally. I'm talking about people who are pastors who do that. I'm talking about the lay person who opens his Bible and points out to people when they're in some kind of sin, and he does that in the right manner. I'm talking about if you disciple someone, you counsel someone in any way, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to admit that Saul would be a hard case to counsel. He'd have to be a, he'd be a very hard... How would you counsel Saul in this matter? What would you say to him? And you're not only dealing with a, an inward sin here like jealousy or pride, you're dealing with a potential murderer here. So what do you say to this guy? Um, he's the king, right? What do you say to the king? He's the one that gives the orders. Uh, in fact, I don't know of anyone outside of Jonathan that could have appealed to Saul, honestly, and gotten anywhere at all. You know, by the way, don't expect Pastor Mike to counsel everybody all the time. 
I know Pastor Mike is a very capable counselor, uh, but you know, he may not be able to reach out to your family or your friend as well as you can, simply because you may have the open door. Uh, he's got the know-how, but you, ha- you may have the open door he doesn't have. You may have the listening ear of that person that he doesn't have. All believers, by the way, are expected to counsel people in some way or another from the Word of God, disciple people in some way or another, and you don't have to be an expert to do that. It's simply sharing the Word of God with someone who's got a problem, and you point out simply what that problem is to the people and help them to, to come up to a, with a solution that the Word of God says. You know, by the way, and don't be arrogant and condescending when you're talking to someone about their sin or problem. Don't do that. And, and condemn them, and that's the end of it, and come with a holy, holier-than-thou attitude. Consider yourself, let you're also tempted, Galatians 6.1 says. Do, do counseling with love and compassion. Speak the truth in love, right? But counseling is not only the work of the professional, not only the work of the pastor, it's the work of every believer. Romans 15, 14, Paul said to the Roman believers, he said to the Roman church, all the believers, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. He says, I believe, Paul said to this church, I believe that everybody in this church is able to admonish one another. That, that word admonished includes the ideas of counseling or exhortation or encouraging or advising people in some way. And you, do, you may not be a professional biblical counselor. Everybody runs from that term, biblical counselor. I can, I'm not a biblical counselor. Who can ever attain such a level? Look, it's just simply advising people from the word of God that you have in your possession, pointing people in the right direction with the Word of God. And God may use you to do just that. Maybe he wants you to, to, to do that. Not in a condescending way again, but in a way that would help your brother or sister in Christ. Now Saul was a hard case, definitely. But look at the results of this counseling session. Look at verse 6. He says, Father, don't do this. <laughs> I'm begging you as your son. Verse 6, Saul did what? He listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. He says, all right, I won't do it. He listened to his son. Now, the person you're talking to about the scriptures, about their problem, maybe they come to you with a problem. Uh, you know, they may or may not listen to you, but what else can you do? What else can you do except advise them from the scriptures? That's what we have. All we can do is point people to Christ in the scriptures. The answer to sin is Christ, by the way. The answer to sin is Christ. Uh, he's the only one that can save from sin. There is no other way. You can't work your way out of this thing. He's the only way to heaven. It's through Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures. And let me remind, remind, remind you of what Mike said this morning in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. There's salvation in no one else but Christ. There is only one. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through the Christ that you're saved. Sinners need a Savior. That Savior and that Savior alone exclusively is Christ. There is no other Savior. He's your only hope. So repent of your sin and trust in Christ for your salvation. So we give people biblical counsel, right? That's what Jonathan did here. But that counsel to be taken effectively, must, to be, become effective, must be taken seriously. People have to take that seriously. If you're receiving counsel, by the way, from someone in the Scriptures, you need to take heed to that counsel and not reject it. We have counsel comes from all sources, all kinds of sources out there, but the only counsel that's going to do any good at all is the word of God. This is what Saul the king needed to hear, what Jonathan is telling him. And this is what we need to hear as well. 
So Jonathan's counsel spared David his life, at least temporarily. And then number two, David is spared death in his own, by his own efforts. This is the second attempt at his life. He spared death uh, by his own efforts. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> when, the, when, there, when there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So again, there's battle with the Philistines. Constant battle going on with the Philistines all this time of David's reign. There's another battle. Uh, David goes out and fights the battle. He wins the battle. Saul should be grateful for this. David is doing his job. David is protecting Saul. David is risking his life for Saul. But here we are again in the house of Saul. Remember the last time we were in his house, what happened? In chapter 18, it wasn't, a, you know, uh, it wasn't exactly a great time of fellowship. Saul tried to kill David with a spear. And here we are again in the house, and here we are again with Saul with the spear in his hand. You know, he likes to hold that spear in his hand, right? Remember they saw that in chapter 18? He loves to just carry the spear around and hold it. It's like people that maybe towed a gun around or something. He likes to hold that in his hand all the time. And he, again, as in chapter 18, he tries to pin David to the wall. But David slips out of his presence. You know, David is a great warrior. And no doubt he has this, uh, he, he's got a great instincts. He understands, <laughs> when someone's trying to kill David, he understands that. He's been there, okay? Uh, he was there with the bear and the lion. And he was there with the Philistines oftentimes. No doubt has great agility. No doubt has great ability to, to sense when danger is, is, is around and, and to be able to move quickly and escape. And I believe the Lord blessed him with this ability, and so he uses this, and he gets out of the way. I mean, how can you miss, how can a guy throw a spear from a short distance like this? Now this is the third time, and he misses again. Either his aim is erratic completely, and Saul was a great warrior, by the way, or David has great agility and ability to get out of the way, and I think it is that. This is God-given ability to allow for his escape. And this is another way that the Lord protected David, another way in his providence that he protects David. But notice how short-lived was the commitment of Saul to not kill David, right? Remember, he said, oh, okay, Jonathan, I won't kill David, your friend. I won't do that. And yet he falls off the wagon here, right? And here he is now. Uh, he's back in his sin again. Oh, I'm trying to murder David again now. In and out of the... You know, Saul's, Jonathan's attempt at biblical counseling was honorable, it was noble, but it only had a temporary effect upon Saul. I mean, it held him temporarily, but didn't go beyond that. You know, it may take a lot of counseling with certain people before you make serious headway, especially the hard cases, right? Or in the case of Saul, maybe he'll never get it. I heard a guy, a pastor, uh, uh, William Still from Scotland, who, who pastored a church there for 50 years, say, you know, I've, I've counseled people in my lifetime that have never gotten it, and I've realized they're never going to get it after years. That's what he said. And so Saul never got it. And there may, there's never going to be a permanent change in, in a person's life until the Lord works in that life anyway, right? We know that. But Saul knew better. He knew who the Lord was. He should have known better. He knew all this. Instead of trying to kill his sin, though, of jealousy, he, instead of trying to kill his sin of hatred and anger, he's trying to kill David. That's what he tried to do. He did the, the wrong thing there. His change was only temporary. 
showing it was not genuine. And so resolve alone is not good enough. It's not good enough to make the resolve that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do a certain thing. Or simply trying to appease someone else is not good enough. Saul listened to Jonathan. That may have only been to appease Jonathan for a while because he was his son. And whatever resolve Saul made evaporated when the true test came here. And he gets angry again. Yet God spared David in spite of all this. And then the third time, David is spared by Michal's resourcefulness. Or we could say deceitfulness, his wife, Michal. Look at verses 11 to 17. It says, Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair on, at his head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on the bed, on his bed, that I may put him to death. Bring his sick bed if you have to. But let me, let me, I'm going to just kill this guy. I don't care if he's sick. I want, to, I want him to die. I don't care if he's sick. So he says that. Verse 16, when the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quill of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michal said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now, what's interesting about this section is Psalm 59 was probably written in connection with this event right here. The title of the psalm there says, uh, for the setting, go ahead and turn to Psalm 59, by the way. It says, for the setting, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him, in order to kill David. That Daniel read this for us earlier. Psalm was written by David, but the king, looking later on, looking back to this incident, no doubt, I'm sure of it, personally, uh, 1 Samuel 19.11 says, Saul sent, to, to show you the, the connection too, 1 Samuel 19.11 says, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death. That's what it says at the superscription of Psalm 59. David, and David speaks to these messengers who come to him in Psalm 59 by use of a word picture. Uh, he says there, they, the messengers of Saul, and he says it twice in this psalm, they return in evening, they howl like a dog, and they go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouths, swords are in their lips. Uh, these messengers of Saul are compared to wild dogs here. They're, they could even be heard outside the house. They're waiting outside for him to kill him, uttering threats against him, uttering threats of murder against him. They weren't very secretive about what they were doing. And it was obvious Michal knew they were out there, and she says, you better get out of here, you're a dead man. And so she makes the plans to help him out. She does everything within her power to help him out. She lets him down through a window. She makes it, makes it look like David is asleep in the bed. She fakes everybody out with that. Uh, she delays the assassination of David by claiming he was sick. Finally, the messengers go in. They, they realize they're tricked by Michal. And Saul, when Saul finds out, he's beside himself. So mad at his daughter for deceiving him. And he, and he calls David his enemy here. The reality was that David was his loyal servant, though. I mean, this guy risked his life to kill Goliath. But Saul was deranged in his mind. He, he sees David only as the enemy and nothing more. And then to top it all off, Michal outright lies to her father, and, and she says, David said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Why should I put you to death? And David never threatened to kill his wife. He never threatened to kill her. In fact, Michal said, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. 
David never met, David, David never made a threat on, his, on her life at all. So she's, she's lying to her father about that. But I will say this, Michal is commended for helping David to escape, no doubt about it. And I do believe she loved him, as chapter 18, verse 20 says. If, you've been, if you haven't been here for a while, we saw that in chapter 18, verse 20. Michal loved David and wanted to marry him. I don't have a problem with this decoy being in the bed either. I think it's something I would have probably tried to pull off too. I don't have a problem with a decoy in the bed at all. What I do have a problem with is that Michal had a household idol available to her. She took this household idol and she made it look like, you know, put hair on it, made it look like the quilt of goat's hair on top. She covered it with clothes. She made it look like David was asleep. She made it look like there was a person in the bed and that this would deceive the, the people coming in. I have a question. Why is there a household idol lying around? It just appears all of a, all of a sudden in the chapter. Nobody says any. There's no comment about it at all. We know David was not an idolater, right? Clearly, David was never an idolater. He loved, he loved the Lord. <clears throat> the Lord was with him. I have a question. <clears throat> was Michal an idolater? Was she? There's no information other than to say she used that as a decoy. She just, you know, oh, let me get the local household, uh, the household uh, idol over here that we have, and I'll use it. Why is it there? I don't know. But so if you, I remember something Saul said to David in chapter 18, verse 21. Look at that. Chapter 18, about, look at verse 20. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a what? A snare to him, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now part of that has got to do with Philistines. He had to, get their, uh, he had to kill them in order to fulfill the dowry. But I wonder if she was a snare to him in other ways. That word snare is used elsewhere in connection with idolatry, by the way. Could it be that Michal was a harmful spiritual influence on David? Uh, could it be that her lifestyle was detrimental to David's walk? And then this outright lie she tells at the end of this whole thing about David is, out, is that totally unnecessary. Did Michal become a spiritual snare to David is the question. Later on, she's, gonna, she's going to be upset when he's dancing for the Lord out in public uh, in front of everybody. and She's not going to have a child, by the way. Let me, let me tell you something. Whenever you're, by the way, this whole marriage arranged by Saul, it was simply that, an arranged marriage by Saul. Whenever you're considering marriage, you need to know about that other person prior to the marriage. You need to know what they're about, what their spiritual life is like, who they really are, what they really think about things. You need to know that information. It's very important. You're not looking for perfection, by the way. You're never going to find it. There's no mate that's perfect out there either way. You're not looking for that. You're looking for a person that honors the Lord with all their imperfections. That's what you're looking for. Now contrast Michael, Mike, Michal's deceitfulness and lie with the approach of David regarding this escape. Look at Psalm 59. This is written, I believe, during this time. We'll just read the first four verses because of time. Dave, Daniel's already read the whole chapter. David is praying... Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Wouldn't you be praying this right about now? These guys outside the house uh, making threats. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Set me securely on, on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. He knew they were trying to kill him. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O oh Lord, 
For no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. So David resorts to what? Resorts to prayer, right? He resorts to prayer. He turns to the Lord in prayer. Now, while, while Michal was scheming and planning, David is praying and trusting. You see what's happening here? David is praying and trusting God. And I believe that the Lord answered David's prayer, yes. But I do believe also he used Michal's resourcefulness in the process. Although lying is never sanctioned by God. Nevertheless, we're always making a mess of everything, right? And God's always working through our mess constantly. It says in the scriptures, he makes even the wrath of man to praise him. So I believe both these things happen. And I believe God spared the life of David as a result. So we've got three attempts at murder so far. Uh, and they have all failed. Now what's interesting about all this is that two of Saul's children are involved in trying to help David. Jonathan and Michal. The father is trying to kill David. Two of the children are going against their own father, and they're helping David out. The Lord is stopping Saul at every turn, isn't he? He's protecting his anointed one. Let's look at chapter the, the last one. The fourth time David is spared by the Spirit's power in, in verses 18 and 24. The fourth time he's spared by the Spirit's power. Look at verse 18. Now David fled after the incident with Michal, and he escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him, and he, he and Samuel went and stayed at Nioth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, but when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Saku, and he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? Someone said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. He proceeded there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Nioth and Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? David escapes the third time with Michal's help. And he decides, I know where I'll go. I'll go to the man who anointed me, anointed me to be the next king, Samuel. I want to be with the prophet of God. That's where I'm going to find some help out, the faithful prophet of God. And so he goes, they go to a place called Nioth when he gets to Samuel. It may have been a place in the country, no one's sure, where the prophets lived under the oversight of Samuel. Samuel's instructing these prophets, apparently. And by the way, Saul has his spies everywhere. Notice in verse 19, it says that it was reported to Saul that David was over there in Nioth. He's got everybody in on this hunt. So Saul sends a group of messengers to David, and when they get near the prophets, they are so overtaken by the Spirit of God they can do nothing but prophesy. They're totally helpless as far as murdering people are concerned. So he sends a second group with the same results, sends a third group of messengers with the same results. They're supposed to be hitmen, by the way. But they become temporary prophets, religious guys, <laughs> under the power of the Spirit, right? Finally, Saul himself goes, okay, look, these guys aren't getting the job done. I'll take care of it. He goes to Nioth, and he's overwhelmed by the Spirit of God to such a degree that he strips himself naked, it says, and prophesies all day and all night. Now, when it says that, either it means one of two things. He was totally naked. Or number two, he took off his outer garments, many thinks, many think, which are symbolic of his authority, at any rate, whatever happened here, Saul was humiliated. He's the king of Israel, and he's acting like a, 
he's acting out of control right now. He's humiliated, acting like a fool in many ways. The Lord humbles Saul here. He humbles him. You know, Saul has had a direct experience with the Spirit of God. This is a very unique individual in Scripture. And he's also had a, very, a, a direct experience with the evil spirit from God, both. And in both cases, it is clear he is not in control. But in both cases, it's clear that the Lord is in control. The Lord's in control of all this. So for a fourth time, David escapes. This is the amazing providence of God working in Jonathan. And then David himself. And then in Michal. And then through the spirit of the Lord to protect his anointed. Just amazing providence. There was a missionary in the 1800s who went to the New Hebrides Islands and the South Seas, which was quite an undertaking back then. His name was John Patton. He went there because he heard about the cannibals that lived on that island. Cannibals eat people. They kill them and eat them is what they do. Two missionaries had preceded John Patton before he got there. They had prepared in their lives to go serve the Lord. They decided to go to, uh, to... the Hebrides Islands, to preach to these cannibals. They went there, and a few minutes after they got there, they were killed and eaten by the cannibals, two missionaries. How do we answer that? It's a gut-wrenching thing to talk about or think about. And all I can say is the Lord allowed them, and I don't say this lightheartedly, by the way, the Lord allowed them in his, in his way to die as martyrs for the gospel. It was their time. It was their time to go for the, for the Lord. Now, John Patton went then, and there are different occasions when he's trying to be a witness to these cannibals, and they're trying to kill him also. They have times, like Saul, who got times where he got, became enraged, and they, they thought, well, hey, we're, here's some guys here we can eat, you know, so why don't we take advantage of this situation? On one occasion, he describes he and a co-worker were in great danger from the cannibals. They surrounded him. Listen to this. I'll quote, I'll quote him. They encircled us. These cannibals encircled us, John Patton says, in a deadly ring, and one kept urging another to strike the first blow or fire the first shot. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene, Patton says. I saw the Lord watching us down here. My peace, he doesn't mean some strange vision. He just understands this, God's providence. My peace then came back to me. He was afraid. My peace came back to me like away from God. He says this, I realized that I was immortal, till my master's work with me was done. That's what he said. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken and that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ. Whose is all power in heaven and on earth? He said, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. John Patton was kept safe by the Lord until God decided to take him from the earth. And God decided to take the other two guys from the earth quicker than that. The same was true of David. It was true of Jesus who said in John 7, 8, my time has not yet fully come. At that time, it was in time for Christ to die. There would be a time for Christ to die on the cross later on. He would, come, he would die on the cross when his father was ready for him to die on the cross. They tried to kill, kill Paul many times, but God providentially protected him many times. You remember the time when he was stoned nearly to death? Some say he was stoned to death and then was resurrected. 
But he was protected until Paul was finally able to say in 1 Timothy 4, 6, the time of my departure is come. Now it's time. And God took him in that time. And the same is true of you and I. Regardless of circumstances in your life, you will, you will remain, no matter, no matter how bleak it appears to be, you will remain on this planet until the Lord decides it's time for you to take you. He may allow you to go. He may allow me to go tonight. We don't know. But he may allow you to stay because he has something for you to do. It's the Lord. It's all up to him. And he'll take you home in not a minute too soon, I might add, in his providence. Psalm 139, 16 says this. In your book, they, the psalmist says, in your book was, were written the days that were ordained for me. This is hard for us to understand. I don't understand this. I'll be honest with you. In, in your book were, the, were written the days that were ordained for me, and then and when as yet there was not one of them. So the Lord plans it all out for us. Only he knows, though. We don't know. He allowed Stephen to be stoned to death, but he allowed David to escape for his own purposes several times. Only God knows. David himself said in Psalm 31, 14, and 15, listen to this, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, he said. I will say you are my God. My times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. So if you're doing the work of God tonight, and that work of God could be raising children for the glory of God. You don't have to be some great missionary somewhere. It could be work, raising children for the glory of God. That work could be working at your job as under the Lord, being a testimony for Christ. Or that work could be preaching the gospel on our foreign field. If you're doing the work of God, you are immortal until your master's work with you is done. And that's the message, I think, out of 1 Samuel 19. So be faithful and be diligent to do the work that he's called you to do, knowing that your times are in the hands of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word tonight, for your, for your word tonight. We just pray that we will trust you with our lives because we can do no other. And whatever you have called to be and to do, we just pray we'll do that. We just pray we'll, we pray that you will lead us and guide us to do your work. We pray we'll trust you always and just remain here and, and do your work until it's our time to go. And we just praise in Christ's name. Amen.